Well, hello, it's me, Panicky, in the UK, and this is Panicky Pictures. Ah! Ah! Hello, everybody. I'm just popping in with an edit, uh, because I did realise belatedly that some of the films that I discuss uh, on this episode do have themes of sexual violence, including child sexual abuse and that's not something that I go into in any detail whatsoever but if it's a topic that you'd prefer to avoid entirely then this episode might not be the right one for you. Um, If you just want to be forewarned or if you want to know when to skip ahead it comes up briefly during my discussions of You Don't Know Me and The Trouble With Being Born Uh, The Trouble with Being Born, it is a slightly longer discussion of those themes. And I do also discuss my life as a courgette during my uh, review of Petit Maman. And and that has some of those same themes. So I don't get into it um, in any detail or any depth. But uh, I just wanted to let you know in advance so you can make an informed decision about this episode. Okay. Okay, so just a couple of quick pieces of housekeeping. First of all, I was planning on doing a kind of mid-season update on House of the Dragon, but I procrastinated for so long that at this point it just makes more sense for me to wait until the next episode airs, and then I'll talk about the first six episodes. And that does also give me a chance to talk about the incoming cast members, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, So... So it all worked out great, and uh, and it's all fine. And the second piece of housekeeping is that I'm recording in a different location today. I usually record... Oh, this is embarrassing, but usually what I do is I, like, um, prop up my microphone on my mattress, and then I kneel on the floor, well, on a floor cushion, because I have bad knees. Um, and the idea behind that is that it kind of uh, stops, you know, any echoes or whatever. I'm kind of like, oh yeah, the audio will be way better. I don't know how much of a difference it makes. But my cat is on my bed right now and I, I don't want to move him. So uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm recording at a desk like a normal person. So I don't know if there's going to be a lot of echoes, um, probably like interference from me accidentally kicking the desk and like picking up and putting down my coffee mug and all kinds of bullshit like that. So I'm sorry about that, but hopefully it's uh, fine. I don't know. All right, so this episode is called I Tried to Watch Everything on movie, which is a super clickbaity title. Um, it makes me think of one of those YouTube videos, you know, and like if it were a YouTube video, I'd be kind of like making a crazy face, like a DreamWorks character uh, in the thumbnail, you know. By the way, I I would be fascinated to know if anybody's like writing a PhD on the psychology of clickbait. I'm sure they must be because uh, that's really interesting stuff. But anyway, much like a clickbait video, uh, the title is misleading. I, of course, did not try to watch everything on Mubi, although there was a time before they introduced the Mubi library when I pretty much was watching everything on Mubi, which was crazy. I mean, it was great. Um, it was actually really good, really interesting. Uh, I kind of regret the fact that they've introduced the library now because I kind of feel like, although their selection is really interesting and great, and you know, they have really good uh, curators slash programmers, whatever you want to call them, uh, I think that really one of the big unique selling points of movie was this idea that it was this rolling catalogue. Rolling? 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's happening to my accent. Um, I don't know if I can say it normally now. Rolling, rolling catalog. I'm sorry. I'm. I swear I'm not on coke or anything. Uh, <laughs> I'm just having a weird day. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah, they had this rolling catalog, which I think uh, was actually really beneficial and which I enjoyed a lot and I have to say that once they introduced the library although I can definitely see how on paper that's a great idea I stopped watching movies so much and then when I was no longer well okay so here's a story um I was doing an MA I have now completed it um and about halfway through uh my MA or about the first year of my MA this thing happened called um the novel coronavirus. I don't know if you've heard of it, um, but I decided to transfer to a part-time course for all kinds of um, practical logistical reasons. Uh, it seemed to make a lot of sense, and it did make a lot of sense. It was a good call. Um, I definitely don't regret doing that, but um, I lost... I got in touch with Mubi, like, oh, I'm still a student because uh, I transferred to a part-time course. Um, can I still have, like, the student discount? on my account and they were like no you can't and I was like oh okay then um so I've kind of tried various things to keep hold of like a cheaper slash free movie account and I keep cancelling it and then sometimes there'll be like a deal or whatever um so I've had it on and off uh but a few months ago they had this deal where it was four months for four pounds and I was like hell yeah absolutely I'll do that that'll be worth it even if I only watch like a couple of movies right um so I got that and then I proceeded not to watch anything on Mubi for the first three months or so of having that deal um because I'm just a disaster of a person obviously uh so (laughs) so I I, uh, eventually realized that I was going to be losing this on the 20th of September and I realized this maybe a week beforehand (laughs) and panicked. I just tried to cram as much of my watch list uh, into that last week or so uh, before I had to, well I didn't have to cancel it, but I can't afford movie at a regular rate, so um, so I did have to cancel it. So I'm going to be talking about those movies now. Now one, two things I'm really annoyed about uh, regarding this. Uh, First of all, um, I completely forgot to watch Benedetta. Like, I went through my whole watch list and I kind of moved the ones that I, like, were higher priority for me for whatever reason up in the list. But for some reason I missed Benedetta. I don't know how. So I still haven't seen that, even though when it came out I was really excited to see it and I should have seen it right away. But this is, like, classic me. I didn't do that. And the other thing is that Parallel Mothers, um, went on to Mubi, like, a few days after I cancelled it, uh, which is also really frustrating, but it is what it is, um, and I did watch quite a few interesting movies, a real range of movies, so I'm literally just going to go on my letterboxed, and I'm going to go through them in chronological order, and I'm going to start, um, so I did actually watch a few in August, uh, when I wasn't panicking, (laughs) not that many, but I did watch a few, So I'm going to start with the 8th of August, which I think is the first time I watched anything on Mubi after getting the four months for four pounds deal. So I think I was nearly two months into the deal before I started watching stuff. (sighs) You know, what can I say? I'm a broken person. Anyway, 
The first thing that I watched was Squish, which is a Thai uh, short film that incorporates animation, including stop motion, and I think various other techniques, if I remember rightly. Uh, it's interesting, it's kind of about, I guess, the struggle between art and commerce and other kind of barriers to creativity, um, not only financial ones, but also um, kind of emotional, psychological ones. So on paper, that totally sounds like the kind of thing that I would be really into, but it didn't hit for me. I don't know, it just didn't really resonate. Maybe there are kind of culturally specific elements that I just didn't have enough knowledge about for it to work for me, but there it is, it didn't. Uh, the second thing I watched, so I, I did actually, I did go through a little stretch where I watched a few things. So the next day, uh, I watched I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. Now, this is a micro-budget Canadian queer movie from the 90s about the art world, and it has a T.S. Eliot reference as its title, so obviously I love this. Um, but actually going in, you know, I was I had a little bit of trepidation, because with these kind of micro-budget queer movies, of which I've watched many, you know, uh, they're variable in, in quality. So I didn't really know what to expect, but I was absolutely charmed by it. It's really delightful. It's about this woman... <laughs> about my age, um, which is, uh, um, increasingly, I don't know, I'm, I had a birthday about a month ago, and I'm becoming increasingly obsessed with, like, mortality and my age and where my life is going. I feel like I probably have been obsessed with that for a while, but it just seems to be intensifying. Oh boy, and also I'm just like, at a, I'm kind of in a little bit of a weird limbo right now, where I'm kind of between major life projects, having graduated from my MA, and not really made a lot of progress towards a fulfilling career, um, and, you know, I'm uh, thinking of further study, but, you know, the logistics of that, and the finances, all of that stuff. I'm just in a weird place. Um, <laughs> this really resonated with me. It's about a woman in her early 30s who, you know, she's basically a temp worker, um, so she does a string of temp jobs. She's not especially good at any of them. She's this really positive, naive woman, and her her big hobby is street photography. And I actually think that, I mean, I'm not that into street photography. My mother loves Diane Arbus. Um, that's totally her thing. For me, you know, I, I don't consider myself very well versed in it, so I don't think that I particularly have an eye. But to me, I thought her street photography was pretty good, pretty interesting. And she kind of has this Walter Mitty-esque energy, you know, like she, she gets lost in daydreams, um, some really funny daydreams. And essentially she takes this temp job uh, working as a secretary to a gallery curator on whom she forms a kind of, um, not necessarily a kind of sexual crush, but just a kind of infatuation. And this curator is an aspiring artist, but not a successful one. And essentially, it's it's kind of a satire on the art world. It's kind of about this naive character being corrupted, or let's say resisting corruption. And it's about believing in yourself. 
So uh, I really loved it. And and it has lesbians as well, just to add to that. So I was so pleasantly surprised. I was I was absolutely charmed by it. It's it's really lovely. And I would say if you're a fan of like Watermelon Woman, this would probably be up your street. But also if you're not a fan of Watermelon Woman, as I know <laughs> at least one of my Letterboxd friends is um, deeply underwhelmed by Watermelon Woman, I would say give this a shot anyway, because I think it has less of the kind of rough edges that Watermelon Woman does. They don't bother me in Watermelon Woman. I think it's great. But, you know, even if, if those kind of rough edges put you off, I would say that this is a little bit more polished. Um, so, so maybe give it a try if that's your kind of thing. All right, moving on. So the same day, in fact, I watched Scenes with Beans. Uh, and this is, I'm just going to double check. I'm pretty sure it's Hungarian. Let me just see. Yeah, it's Hungarian. It's a stop motion animation. And it's all about, it's all about a planet of beans as little bean people. They're human beans and they're just hanging out on their little bean planet, participating in the space race, um, but also doing other other things that humans do, as, as David Byrne uh, so memorably sang. Um, and uh, it's it's just fantastic. Um, really, really great. Absolutely my thing. I don't think it's on movie anymore, but if you do get a chance to see it, I would highly recommend it. It's, it's just delightful. Oh, and also lots of um, playing with scale, which is a big thing for me. I absolutely love films that play with scale. Uh, so yeah, absolutely, 100% my cup of tea. All right, next day I watched The Unbelievable Truth. Um, probably one of the better known films on this list. Um, so I won't massively go into kind of the premise and what, what it's about and everything. Um, I will just say that it didn't really work for me, um, which I was surprised by. I know a lot of people whose opinions I totally respect uh, really like this movie. Yeah, it just wasn't my thing. I don't know. I couldn't really connect to the characters. And I know it's a cliche to say that. And do you need to connect to the characters? I think I don't necessarily think that you need to quote-unquote relate to the characters or like the characters, but I think that you either have to be emotionally involved or uh, there have to be enough laughs or scares or whatever, uh, depending on the genre, to justify the fact that you're not emotionally involved. There has to be something, and for me there just wasn't. But, in stark contrast, on the 15th of August, I watched a short film called The Recorder Exam, and this is a beautiful uh, Korean film, and it, <laughs> I mean, it does what it says on the tin, it, it is about a recorder exam, it's about a young girl in a kind of dysfunctional family who is preparing for a recorder exam at school. Um, she really wants to do well because she wants her family to come out and support her and appreciate her, but that's just not happening. She's overlooked at home, I think largely because she's a girl, also because she's the youngest. Um, her parents don't have a good relationship, and also they're living in poverty. Uh, so she has this old recorder, it's a hand-me-down recorder from her brother, that just doesn't sound very good, and oh man, it absolutely broke my heart in the best possible way. It is just stunning. 
it's another film that I think has left movie now, unfortunately. But if you have any possibility of seeing this film, I could not recommend it more highly. It's it's just gorgeous, it's stunning. I I I just I'm just gonna keep saying superlatives if I carry on, uh, so I won't. But really a delight. Okay, now, on the 24th of August, I watched a film called Aloners. And that was another Korean film. Um, That's South Korea, uh, or Republic of Korea. Uh, I quite liked it. Um, It's kind of a ghost story, and it's also a story about a woman about my age, stuck in a shit job. And it's also about isolation and loneliness and sort of urban atomization. So I liked it. I did like it. I there there is something oh god, I really went off the rails in my letterbox write up for this one. And I'm on letterbox to panic in the UK if you wanna read my write ups of any of these, which are usually somewhat better structured than my um like unscripted ramblings on this podcast, if you do want a bit more in-depth uh, analysis or reflection on any of these films, then my letterboxd is a good place to hit up. But yeah, it, it hit a nerve for me, I think, because I'm somebody who lives alone, um, quite far away from any of my family or close friends. I'm not in a relationship, I haven't been in a relationship for years, I'm not seeking a relationship. And I feel like I get a lot of cultural messages about that and about how, I guess, um, if I feel okay about living this way, then I'm probably lying to myself or I'm, you know, deeply bitter or... It's a lot of misogynistic tropes, I think, around that. Which is not to say that I don't think that some form of community and support network is important. But I think that sometimes mm, people who do prefer their own company or are relatively self-sufficient, you know, you don't want to take it to an extreme. Unless you do. Some people do. I mean, anchorites used to brick themselves up, you know. So some people, for some people, that's... Uh, that's their choice. But, you know, I think for most people, sure, you do want to strike some kind of a balance. But I don't think, I think we run the risk of, like, invalidating people who don't want to live, say, in a traditional family unit, which is, you know, kind of massively predicated on sort of regressive ideas about kind of heteropatriarchal structures, even if you're in a same-sex relationship or or any kind of queer relationship, those family structures are still kind of embedded in heteropatriarchy, I think. And also kind of an invention of the 20th century in many ways, at least, you know, in many cultures and, and, you know, for people who aren't sort of upper middle class and above multi-generational households have long been you know a completely valid form of a family unit in a way that's kind of shamed now you know like it's used as an insult if you still live with your parents or whatever oh boy i kind of (laughs) again uh, went off the rails with this one um yeah i don't know I, i think i'm probably putting a little bit too much on this movie just because it was something that had been floating around in my consciousness a lot when i saw this movie and you know like i'm struggling for that balance right now because 
yeah, like I, I can sometimes feel socially isolated and like I don't have a local support network and that can be really hard when things go wrong. But I don't, by the same token, for me personally, and like, you know, no shade if this is your thing, I don't want to settle into a traditional nuclear family unit or a traditional relationship structure. That's not for me. And I guess I feel... Not to use a buzzword that is starting to become kind of meaningless through overuse and misuse. But I sometimes feel kind of gaslit where people are kind of like, oh, well, you're only saying that you don't want that because you can't have it. As if I couldn't have it if I wanted it. How dare you? Like, are you kidding? Like, I could get on a dating app and, like, find somebody good enough, you know? Like, it's not like it's not available it's just not something that I'm seeking or that I want, you know? Okay, we're talking about movies. Oh, let's move on from this one. <laughs> oh boy. I don't know, should I cut all- No, I'm not going to cut all of that out, but, uh, yeah, okay. All right, so then I, <laughs> then I took a nearly, no, I think exactly a three-week gap, and the next thing I watched was Sycrax, and at this point I had realised that my um, cheap subscription was going to run out soon, and I was panicking and uh, trying to uh, shove a lot of stuff into a short space of time. Uh, So I was in a big rush. So the next thing I watched on the 14th of September was Sycorax, which is a short film. Um, It's about the character Sycorax from Shakespeare's The Tempest, which is not a Shakespeare play I'm super familiar with. Um, it seems to be a kind of attempt to reclaim the sorceress Sycorax in a feminist context. It didn't work for me. I kind of felt like the feminist reclamation was pretty shallow. Um, uh, the filmmakers are men, if, you know, that makes a difference to the way you feel about it. It kind of does for me, uh, to a degree. Uh, not to be essentialist, but like, you know. Um, and uh, I felt like some of the... Th- there was some footage that seemed to be candid footage, which I found vaguely exploitative. So maybe I'm kind of like hypersensitive to that kind of thing, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it just didn't really work for me. I didn't find it very interesting, but it was very atmospheric. Um, there's some beautiful photography and kind of use of sound, um, but I just didn't think that the writing was good enough. All right, and then on the same day, 14th of September, I watched Petite Maman, the Céline Sciamma movie. I, I'm not a Céline Sciamma super fan. I have really enjoyed some of her work, but not without reservations. I did really like uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I thought My Life is a Courgette was fantastic, but I I thought Girlhood was a bit crude. Again, like, I don't want to get into a whole thing of, like, who's allowed to tell what stories or, you know, um, whose perspective is valid, but I didn't think she was the right person to tell a story about kind of like underprivileged black teenagers it just didn't come off for me i'm not saying that like no kind of middle-aged white woman (laughs) can do that i actually thought rocks was really good for example um but just for girlhood it didn't um didn't really work for me but anyway uh petite mama and i apologize for my french pronunciation which is shocking yeah uh I, i i did like it the kids in it do not make sense as 
as real children of that age. They don't sound authentically uh, like kind of um, pre-adolescent kids. I don't know if that matters, you know, that's a choice, it's a creative choice, and I think it's okay, especially kind of given the fact that one of these children may not really be a child, um, per se. I think it's fine, although it was a little bit jarring, I kind of had to ease myself into that. I think the the, the, the character of the father is not very well realised or defined. I, I read uh, somebody else's uh, review on Letterboxd, um, actually I'm just gonna try and find who that was so I can give them proper credit. That's right, it was um, Mike Kennedy, who's just a fucking great letterboxed writer, watches a lot of queer movies, goes to a lot of film festivals, and um, I really enjoy his insights. Um, And uh, he, yeah, he he basically said that, that when the father character was first introduced, he thought it was the uncle, and I had exactly the same reaction. I don't think that relationship is made clear enough. And I had some of the same uh, reservations that Mike did, but it did work better for me than it did for him. It really reminded me of some of the children's literature that I used to read growing up, a lot of which have these kind of odd time slips, you know, like um, Tom's Midnight Garden and A Stitch in Time by Penelope Lively. Um, And then also I think uh, when Marnie was there, which I didn't read, I've only seen the Ghibli adaptation, which I think is mm, kind of uncomfortable just because I do feel like that central relationship feels queer coded. And then obviously the reveal of of the relationship between those two characters makes that very uncomfortable. So yeah, Um, but definitely this has the feeling of something like when Marnie was there. And I was also thinking a little bit of Bridge to Terabithia, which I also haven't read, I've only seen the uh, film adaptation. Completely different tonally, totally, totally different approaches, but thematically kind of similar in the sense that they're kind of both about grief and loss and about going into the woods and having a magical experience and about, you know, the the friendships that you make in childhood that can be so intense. And I think it's really kind of illuminating to look at how different those two movies are because one uses, you know, no CGI, very, very little incidental musical score, you know, entirely character-driven. Whereas the other, you know, it does have those visual effects, it's very heavily scored, it's just tonally completely different. And I like both of those films, and I think both of those approaches are interesting and valid and fine, but I I just think it's kind of illuminating to look at both of those movies and how differently they treat kind of similar ideas. So yeah. Um, So I wasn't as bowled over by Petit Maman as so many people were, but I did like it. I liked it more than Mike did, and Mike was one of the kind of few dissenting voices that I found about it. So yeah, so I was kind of on the fence about that one, but I certainly think it's, you know, worth a watch. Although I don't think it has the same kind of crossover appeal or emotional depth as My Life is Courgette, which I I do think is fantastic, and really does a good job of being 
suitable for a young audience but also having this kind of darkness and complexity that makes it really valuable for a a whole family audience you know especially if you're a family because I think we we often think about how we need to kind of protect children from difficult concepts and ideas the fact is a lot of children aren't protected from that in their real life you know a lot of a lot of children do go through traumas and that needs to be something that that can be that people can be realistic about that people can kind of look at full in the face um and deal with and i think that my life is a courgette is is a really good example of of doing that but it wasn't one of the movies i watched so again let's move on okay the girl chewing gum uh i'm not gonna i don't have that much to say about this it starts off kind of interesting it's um it's basically some footage some street footage uh, and then it has a voiceover over the top of what is constructed as a director directing the camera movements and the people on the street and everything. Um, so it's kind of a fun idea, but I think it overstays its welcome. There is also some, I mean, it's it's a film from 1976 and some of the... I guess I'll say ethnic descriptors of some of the the people in the movie um, are outdated. I I don't necessarily think it's kind of mean-spirited, but it just is a little bit uncomfortable to listen to, and I don't really think it's worth it um, for what the film is. Uh, It's kind of a fun idea, but it's it's just, it's one idea, and I think it just goes on for way too long. so. So I wasn't crazy about that, but you know, whatever, it's fine. Same day, 15th, I watched You Don't Know Me, which I've been wanting to watch for a long time because I am a showgirl super fan, as I've talked about in a previous episode of this podcast, as well as on Letterboxd. Yeah, I was underwhelmed. I think uh, my friend Johnny, who is a previous guest, put it really well um, in saying that Uh, the film leans into kind of having both sides represented in a way that I think is totally unnecessary because the mainstream response to the movie was that it was terrible you know like every critic at the time hated it it was a box office bomb that's its reputation you don't necessarily need to have a bunch of people in this documentary that is supposed to be a kind of reassessment of the movie repeating that line, you know, is is really not necessary. And uh, a guy that kind of bothered me, David Schmader, who did these kind of, or still does these kind of touring, what he calls annotated screenings of showgirls that will have, you know, drag performances and pole dancers and stuff. I went to one of these in Manchester, which I'm not sure he actually oversaw, but I think was very heavily, like, influenced by his screenings. Um, And I wrote about that at great length on Letterboxd, and I may have talked about it on here too. And I just disagree with his take, and I feel like he gets an awful lot of time here in a way that some other people don't, um, who I found much more compelling. Um, So Adam Naiman is one, and he wrote a book called It Doesn't Suck, uh, which I really want to read. This guy called Jeffrey Sconce, who who really doesn't get that much time to talk, but what he did say really resonated with my own feelings about the movie. And then there's also a woman called April Kidwell, who has starred in uh, an unofficial musical version of Showgirls. And her testimony was incredibly moving because she is a survivor of sexual violence. And so her relationship with the movie is really interesting. I wish I'd had more of a chance to hear from her and see more of the music 
musical and stuff. A couple of other interesting things. There's a guy called Jeffrey Conway who wrote Showgirls the movie in Sestinas, which sounds just totally fascinating. I'd love that. And uh, as I said, the uh, the musical version, which uh, I'd really like to see. So yeah, I I, I thought that this kind of had structural issues. It didn't get into as much depth in its analysis or reassessment of the movie as I would have liked and it just gave way too much space to David Schmader and to various other people who were just kind of repeating the dominant line about the movie which again I just don't feel like we need to keep hearing because we all know what most people think of the movie what's the point of making a documentary reassessing it if you're going to spend so much time just repeating that. And speaking of repeating yourself, that's what I'm doing right now, so I'm going to move on. All right, so then next, oh boy, oh, I'm nervous about talking about this one. Um, on the 16th of September, I watched The Worst Person in the World, which everybody <laughs> except me absolutely loves. Uh, I had more mixed feelings about it which is not to say that I didn't appreciate aspects of it um I just don't I don't get the hype and I don't necessarily feel like the uh structural choice of dividing it into these 12 chapters with a prologue and an epilogue I don't totally understand the reasoning behind that and I found that it made for me the film feel more disjointed and less than the sum of its parts, I guess. Um, there were things that I thought were great. Um, I particularly liked the um, drug trip. Uh, and I thought the end was quite powerful. I just didn't mm, necessarily feel that it had been earned by what had gone before. And I don't know, it's kind of interesting to make a movie that seems like it's going to be about kind of millennial malaise and then it kind of blindsides you by actually being about mortality. But yeah, as I say, I don't know how earned I felt that was. And I think that this is a movie that brings up a lot of really interesting ideas and subjects, you know, like natalism, like climate change, like mortality, like the fact that, you know, increasingly <laughs> my generation and uh, the one coming down the stairs behind me is kind of unmoored and doesn't have the clear sort of path in life um, that I think previous generations had. Possibly because they had less choice, you know? I, I think it's kind of swings and roundabouts. But, you know, all of those are kind of interesting ideas. I just don't know if the film says anything very new or insightful about any of them. Possibly the thing it's most insightful about is mortality. But again, most of the movie isn't really about that. So, I'd, yeah, I just, I just was underwhelmed. And um, I feel like I'm going to get cancelled. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm gonna get cancelled for saying this, uh, but you know what I mean. Like I feel, I feel a little bit, uh, I don't know, I'm scared <laughs> of the response. But as yet, uh, nobody on Letterboxd has reacted whatsoever to my write-up, so I guess I'm probably safe. Uh, I think I have fewer listeners to this podcast than I have followers on Letterboxd. So uh, if I haven't uh, been uh, ganged up on so far, it's probably not going to happen now. Anyway, uh, the next thing I watched. Uh, the next day 
was the Forbidden Room. This is the 17th of September. I don't know why I keep saying the dates like anybody cares when I watch these movies, but I don't know. I've started so I'll finish. So it was the Forbidden Room um, by Guy Madden. I watched the first ever Guy Madden movie I saw was The Saddest Music in the World, and this must have been like getting on for 20 years ago. I saw it at the Broadway in Nottingham when I was a teenager, and I just was totally enchanted by it. I don't think I'd ever seen anything like it. Um, and then I didn't watch another Guy Madden movie for years and years until I think I saw Stump the Guesser probably last year for the first time. I've seen it a couple of times now, which I loved. Um, it's a kind of um, silent film pastiche about a guy who wants to disprove heredity so that he can marry his sister. And he's also a guesser at a fairground. Uh, there's a lot going on, but yeah, that I loved it. Like I thought it was fantastic. The Forbidden Room, probably not my favourite Guy Madden, but I did really enjoy it. Um, I did find it very funny. It's um, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of an anthology movie, although it's not structured in a way that is totally sensical. Uh, it just kind of feels like a series of dreams more than anything else. But the kind of frame narrative is that there are these four guys on a submarine, the Jelly Boys, whose uh, whose job is to watch over the nitroglycerin. But it's melting. And if they surface, it's going to explode. But if they don't surface, they're going to run out of food and water and oxygen and, you know, all of that good stuff. So uh, they're in a tight spot. One of them does suggest asking the captain, but another says, no, no. He hates to be bothered. Um, So that's the kind of uh, thing that you can expect from The Forbidden Room. If that sounds fun to you, then uh, I advise you to give it a go, check it out. Uh, If not, then uh, let's move on. Um, So I saw Irma Vep on the 18th, uh, which I had no idea what to expect. I had recently had an interview uh, with, oh my god, I'm completely drawing a blank on her name. The very famous woman who's in all the movies, um, you know, the star of, of the new miniseries, the kind of reboot, remake, reimagining of, of Irma Vep. Oh my god, this is going to drive me crazy. I know I could look up her name, but I'm expecting it to come to me any minute. Anyway, you know who I mean. I um, I heard an interview with her recently about the remake. Prior to that, I'd kind of seen the blurb of Irma Vep, but I really didn't know that much about it or what to expect. And I really had no idea that it was kind of a satire on the French film industry in the 90s, which I don't really know enough about for that to totally make sense to me. But you know, like, you know, you get the gist. Um, But I think that what's more interesting about it for me is uh, Maggie Chung, who is absolutely fantastic, and one of the stars of... Well, she's not really the star. I was going to say she's one of the stars of one of my favourite movies, which is 2046, but actually, I would say she has more of a cameo in 2046, but obviously it harks back to In the Mood for Love, of which she was the star. But I didn't really know her from anything else, so... I didn't know what to expect uh, at all. I, I mean, like, Su Li Chen from uh, the Wang Ka Wai movies is a very kind of closed-off character. And she's playing a very... Well, she's playing herself, or a version of herself here. And it's a very, very different performance. And uh, I was absolutely charmed by her. And also, you know, 
As somebody who has lived abroad and had to kind of navigate some of the situations that she's navigating in this film, it did really ring true for me. So I enjoyed that aspect of it, but the kind of film industry satire side of it didn't hit as much for me, just because I think that I'm kind of lacking the background knowledge about, as I say, the French film industry in the 1990s. It's just not something I know really know anything about other than, I guess, what the movie <laughs> tells you. So that side of it just wasn't as powerful for me, but Maggie Chung is absolutely fantastic. I guess the same day... Oh no, right, I remember now. I finished Irma Vep, like, after midnight, so I marked it as being the 18th, but um, I did sleep in between uh, watching that and watching this next one. So the next one I watched was The Trouble With Being Born. Oh, on the 18th, I woke up with like a terrible headache. I felt really bad and I had been intending to do a double bill, either of Annette and The Trouble With Being Born or of, what was the other thing I was thinking of doing? I think it was rap film and something else. But I just felt dreadful and I was kind of like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to watch two movies. But I did start watching Annette and I got half an hour into it and oh man, it just really wasn't working for me. Maybe if I tried again, like in a better frame of mind when I wasn't ill, maybe it would have worked better for me, but it just really was not hissing for me at all. So I watched The Trouble With Being Born, (laughs) which is an Austrian movie about a robot. It's very much a kind of Pinocchio story. And of course, you know, like this has kind of been done before in AI, but this is a different take on that. And, you know, it's it's a controversial movie because it does kind of deal with what you could call child sexual abuse in that the robot character looks like a child, although it or she or they aren't. But certainly, you know, it's adjacent to that idea. I mean, I I was still kind of open to watching it I think it's perfectly possible for films to deal with that idea without being offensive or re-traumatising or, you know, I I don't think it's out of bounds as long as it's done sensitively. And it wasn't so much that I felt that it was treated insensitively as that I just didn't think, uh, I didn't think it had enough to say to really justify using that as a plotline. There are some interesting things going on here around, I think, the way that we're sort of re-traumatized by our caregivers, that they pass their traumas along to us, and that they kind of shape our personality by telling us stories about ourselves, and that sometimes we need to detach from that and interrogate those stories in order to really find out who we are separate from this mythology that we've been endowed by our caregivers and I think that that's interesting but I I think the movie sort of touches on that but doesn't do much more. It's a very cold movie emotionally but also in terms of the aesthetics and the colour palette. I found it hard work and I thought that in terms of kind of ideas around AI and identity and memory, there's a movie called Marjorie Prime that I thought was ultimately more effective on that. In terms of child sexual abuse, there's a movie I saw many years ago, an animated movie called Princess, which I thought dealt with it 
more successfully. And it also made me think, oddly enough, of a movie that I saw around the same time. I saw them both at the Leeds International Film Festival, I think in 2009? It may have been 2007. I went to both of those, I think. Um, It was one of those two, I'm pretty sure. And it was called Die Freie Villa, and that was certainly a German language film. I'm not sure if it was German, it may also have been Austrian. But that was about a compulsive rapist, so cheery stuff. But I thought in terms of kind of like transgressive, I say transgressive, I mean obviously like, um, you know, uh, violent and reprehensible sexual compulsion, I thought that that was a more interesting film. So for whatever reason it, it kind of reminded me of all of those, but I didn't think it did any of the things it was doing as well as those films did the things they were doing. So yeah, so I just ended up finding it a bit of a disappointment, or a huge disappointment if I'm honest. But I mean, I finished it, which is more than I can say for Annette, but... Yeah, it, it wasn't really for me. Okay, let's move on to something uh, better. Uh, all the Crows in the World, which I saw on the 19th. In fact, I saw all of these three movies, all of which are shorts, on the 19th. They're the last three things that I watched on movie before I had to cancel it. All the Crows in the World is a Hong Kong short, and I really enjoyed it. Definitely there were kind of cultural things that I think I probably didn't totally get to grips with, but I still really enjoyed it. It's kind of an absurdist thing about a teenage girl. Uh, She goes to this strange party thrown by her cousin, and it's slightly odd. It seems to be at a kind of, I don't know, like a strip club, like a lap dancing place, Um, but definitely like upholding very kind of traditional values around gender and femininity and everything. But she uh, she meets this guy there who is different from the other guys, uh, and they hit it off and go off into the night and uh, play pranks on people. But it's not a romance. It, it's about a friendship. And in fact, she, she also has a female friend who she finds out is working at this place, much to her shock. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I can really describe it any better than that it's it's a it's a confusing and kind of absurdist short but i did enjoy it and uh yeah check it out i next watched east eggs which is a belgian animated short kind of animated in the style of like a mike judge cartoon you know kind of like a beavis and butthead or king of the hill kind of vibe but in terms of just the animation style but not in terms of the tone because it is deeply fucking depressing this was one i mean it was well made and really effective but i could not give it a like on letterboxd because it fucking bummed me out so much it was just like deeply upsetting really dark so i would say if you want to watch that one just pick your moment and make sure you're in a frame of mind where you're feeling resilient i guess and uh finally i watched i like life a lot uh which is another hungarian animation and it was made by children from a Romani background in Hungary, and it's kind of based on their drawings and their letters about their life, and uh, it's really interesting. It's really interesting kind of insight into uh, what life was like for Romani children in Hungary in the uh, 1970s. It's from 1977. Uh, I will just mention um, another movie that I started and didn't finish, which was Rap Film. So I think it's probably a really good and interesting film, 
I just started watching it with the wrong expectations. Um, I, I thought it was going to be about rats. Um, it's also, it's, the rats are just metaphorical and it's about race relations in Baltimore, which is obviously a really interesting topic. I just went in with the completely wrong expectations. As somebody who really likes rats, um, I just, it just, I wasn't in the right frame of mind for it and I I just went in primed for the wrong thing so I can't really speak to that uh because yeah I just had to abandon it because I was just in completely the wrong headspace for it but definitely uh an interesting concept all right well I'm gonna leave it there um (laughs) I'm sorry this was so chaotic although I don't know why I'm saying that because I don't know if it's any more chaotic than my average episode um but anyway um I will return uh, with a Hot D episode, hopefully in the next week, um, hopefully in the next few days, but I don't want to, uh, commit myself, uh, cause, you know, uh, what I'm like, um, alright, well, let's leave it at that for today, and if you have listened to this whole thing, fucking congratulations, or thank you, or my condolences? I don't know. Um, but I hope you got something out of it, and of course, as always, you can find me on Letterboxd at panicky in the uk and you can also find me um on gmail at the same handle technically i'm on other places but uh, like you know i have like locked accounts and you don't want to find me there it's fine you can find me on letterbox and gmail those are the places to find me okay bye